This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. I don't know about you, but even though there's unlimited information available online, I tend to learn best by doing things and actually getting my hands dirty. If you're interested in making the leap from screens to the land, then I've got some exciting learning events for you. I'm going to be teaching two of my favorite subjects this upcoming autumn at the Green Rebel Farm in beautiful Miravet, Spain. The first course is a weekend intensive on regenerative agroforestry designed for people who want to try their hands at a range of different tree planting and orchard maintenance skills. We'll cover the whole range from reading a landscape and propagating plants to planning a planting project, getting trees in the ground, maintaining a growing system, and even pruning a grown forest. The best part is that all of these are based on activities to advance a real farm. The second event is a five-day deep dive into the regenerative design process, again with a focus on agroforestry. This course is designed for people who are either considering buying land or who are at the early stages of developing a site and want to ensure that they get off on a profitable regenerative trajectory. We'll work through the scale of permanence, learning to gather essential information about the landscape, vegetation, and soil. From there, we'll work through hydrological capture and restoration, planning for productive planting and reforestation, business considerations, soil health regeneration, and much more. All of this too will be taught through hands-on activities, so you leave not only knowing how to develop an effective and profitable design, but also with experience with the work and skills required to get things done. This weekend agroforestry intensive will be from Friday the 16th through Sunday the 18th of September. And the design workshop goes from Tuesday the 11th to Sunday the 16th of October. So don't start your project with digital learning alone. Come and get your hands dirty with inspiring, like-minded people and level up your skills this autumn. You can learn more by clicking at the link at regenerativeskills.com or on the link tree in the bio on our Instagram. Early bird discounts are now open, so don't hesitate. And I'll see you in the orchard soon. All right, hello everybody and welcome back. Now, though we're quite a few episodes into this series on tree planting and agroforestry already, I had a unique opportunity to go back to the roots of this topic and explore some of the fundamentals of the plant kingdom and how we can actively work to preserve the wonder and diversity of vegetative life. The truth is that the challenges of climate change and ecosystem mismanagement aren't only having an effect on humans and animals. Despite the fact that plants make up the vast majority of living biomass on Earth, they're just as vulnerable in their own unique ways to warming climates, missing elements in their food webs, natural disasters, and other challenges. In order to get a better understanding of both the beauty of life in the plant kingdom and the difficulties for caring for such broad and diverse life forms, I spoke with Paul Nicholson, horticulturalist with the Royal Botanical Gardens of Sydney, Australia. Now, Paul has nearly 30 years working as a horticulturalist curating diverse collections such as palms, camellias, begonias, succulents, and Australian rainforest plants. He also instigated and helped develop the Kadijam Ora First Encounters Garden and the Spring Walk and Palm Grove Restoration Programs. Paul is especially motivated to help people understand that plants are central to their lives, That plants are interesting, exciting, engaging, and the more time you spend with plants, the happier you're likely to be. His role as a tour guide and volunteer program manager has also given him an incredible ability to communicate his passion for his work and the collections at the gardens. 
Now, since we're already so far into this series on exploring trees and various configurations of reforestation, this episode is a great chance to reconnect with the full range of the wild and wonderful world of plants, botany, and horticulture in order to see it as a more complete picture and the connections that help each member of the ecosystem thrive. Now, any of you other plant nerds out there like me are going to love this one, so I'll hand things over now to Paul Nicholson. Before we get started, let's maybe establish a core definition, which is what is a botanical garden and how is it different from any other type of garden? Yeah, well, although botanic gardens are beautiful, what we have to remember is they're curated collections of plants that are used for scientific research, education and conservation. And that's really the key thing. Although we present beautiful gardens, we're actually concerned with living collections that we're conserving, researching and hopefully um, sharing with people. And that kind of covers the whole gamut too, because I know you have edible plants in the collection at the Royal Botanical Gardens there in Sydney as well. Um, so it isn't just rare and collected species, but it kind of runs the full gamut as well, doesn't it? That's right. And we, we very much see ourselves as custodians of these three landscapes. So we have three botanic gardens as part of our organisation. And there's plants that have been planted for more than 150 years. So obviously they've got huge value because of their heritage. But we also have plants and even ecosystems that occur on our botanic garden site that predate European sentiment. So, you know, it's really important to learn from these ecosystems, conserve them. Um, and then we have plants that are, are there for amenity. I mean, they are there because they're beautiful. At the moment at one of our botanic gardens, all the daffodils are flowering. Well, they're not native to Australia, but they do give people a lift. And I guess what we're really about is inspiring people to appreciate and conserve plants. And our collections reflect all the different ways you can be inspired. For some people, they really love to know the scientific stories for the plants. For other people, the way in is kind of through their heart. It's through they just love what they see. And from there, hopefully, they jump on board and, and, and help us with what we're trying to do. So. Amazing. And I can imagine you've seen kind of the full spectrum of how people connect with the plant world as they begin to discover it, just like you're saying, going into the science and the history of certain things, or even just connecting with the aesthetics and the feelings that they get from being around all the colors and the different expressions of plant life. But I'm also wondering, too, since, of course, humans have undoubtedly studied plants for our entire history, whether formally or just through observation, when did these studies become formalized in such a way that botany and horticulture became disciplines and the objective was to categorize and collect them. Yeah, and I think what we're trying to do now is integrate different types of knowledge and learn from each other. So each of our gardens sits on, you know, a different Aboriginal cultural group's land. So in Sydney, it's Gadigal, our Blue Mountains gardens are on Durrick land and our Australian Botanic Garden on Darawa land. And these people have developed incredible knowledge of plants over 65,000 years. I mean, in the Western paradigm, you know, we've been classifying plants, you know, really full on since the late 18th century, once we have the Linnaean system and we have the taxonomy of plants. And I guess we start to get 
the splintering up of knowledge groups. So botany becomes a science, whereas before that, you were a natural historian, you're interested in insects, you're interested in botany. And I think there's a lot to be said for that overall worldview that a lot of First Nations cultures have, and perhaps a pre-specialization of different areas of scientific knowledge have as well, because there is this level of connection between all living organisms um, that we can demonstrate scientifically, but also a lot of the First Nations communities have that as part of their worldview. And one of the really exciting things that's been happening with our organisation is, is kind of knowledge sharing with our First Nations people. And we have a, a couple of really interesting research projects where kind of strange distant distributions of plants that we've been researching with modern DNA techniques what those techniques are telling us is actually the story that our First Nations people have been telling us about those plants. So I think there's just a lot to be gained from that knowledge sharing and, yeah, not always being too specialised and looking outside of your particular research focus to see how your plant interacts with all the organisms around it and, of course, with us. I mean, Australia is an incredible continent that's had people interacting with that landscape for at least 65,000 years. And the landscape we see in Australia today and the landscape that Europeans saw in 1770 arises out of that interaction and the cultural practices that First Nations people had for managing landscapes. So it, for me, it's really exciting to to take that perspective and it's really exciting to sort of change the maybe the way people think about Australian plants and Australian landscapes. Indeed and you've kind of already touched on part of it already but how has the practice of horticulture and botany evolved since sort of the late 1800s like you mentioned from being what you called before now like a stamp collecting sort of mentality just catch them all kind of a Pokemon run around trying to grab every plant that you can to something that's more integrated with the entirety of an ecosystem that allows these plants to survive and communicate and grow together. Yeah, that's really important. I mean, I think that obviously the history of the Botanic Gardens in Sydney starts in 1816, and we're part of that transnational global exchange of plants, which is partly for economics, but as you said, it's also partly for creating these taxonomic collections to try, if you like, to work out those morphological relationships of plants. And I think we now look very much more at an ecosystem level, so how plants integrate into environments and how we actually conserve those environments, and particularly with climate change bringing such rapid changes, what can we do to ensure the resilience of those environments as the climate changes? And then I think the other thing that's really changed is we look very differently or we have very different tools to see how plants have been related to each other historically or over deep time. So the phylogeny of plants is really bringing up all these new relationships that morphologically we wouldn't have predicted. So for instance, one of the closest relatives of our Australian Proteaceae, which includes Banksias and Grevilleas and really plants that make the Australian flora unique, turns out one of their closest relatives is the lotus. So the sacred lotus or Nalumbo, and that's, that's come out through the kind of DNA research, which has allowed us to remap those families. So I think there's, there's those two things um, 
operating together. But I think the DNA research has given us incredible tools for better understanding plants, but importantly, also for better conserving them. So it's not just about putting them in their little box, it's working out how they relate to all the other organisms around them now, but historically, how have they changed and related to other plants alive today or many plants that are now extinct? Well, let's go into that a little bit because in the last couple hundred years, plants have traveled across the globe in a way that was never possible before with the expansion, colonization, and movement of humans as well. This has caused some massive disruptions in native plant populations. And there's so many things that have come out of this. What have you started to observe in this approach of ecosystem curation rather than just bringing plants and putting them in isolated exhibitions that can be understood from perhaps a, an invasive or non-native plants uh, mentality that so many, let's say natural parks or you know fights against these expansions are currently being dealt with in different parts of the world. Yeah, well, Australia has obviously been isolated for a very long time. So let's say at least 37 million years, we've pretty much been on our own with a couple of occasional land bridges, which has allowed the Australian flora to evolve in isolation. And we are also a continent. So we've got a kind of diversification of species to um, adapt to all these different ecological niches. And you're very right, that has been disrupted in many cases by the introduction of plants from other places. And we do have, you know, issues with some weed species colonising those areas, which is, you know, it's, it is a massive issue at a, at a continent-wide level. But I think one of the other things that is perhaps interesting for where we're heading now is really just trying to understand through climate modelling what's what's happening, what's likely to happen to our climate. We have plants that are distributed across a lot of ecological niches. And perhaps when we look at revegetation, so we look at this a lot in Australia, try and renew and revegetate areas that, you know, we have been able to clear weeds or we're work, working to to clear weeds from or restore old farmland through regenerative regenerative practices. What sort of plants should we plant in there when we're modeling 150 years ahead? Uh, and maybe, and this is, we have a group called Restore and Renew who work within the gardens, who sample across different geological ranges of particular species and then model climate changes in areas that have been revegetated to try and map the occurrence of that species that will best match that climate as it changes. So it's sort of got a lot more sophisticated than getting rid of the invasive plants and just planting species that used to be there um, back in that place. We're now sort of looking at what are we expecting from the climate in the next 100, 150 years, and maybe what occurrences of those species should we be planting in those areas. So it's, um, it's an enormous job. And I do think in Australia in particular, we're really just starting to come to terms with one, the impact of climate change, and two, just understanding how the landscapes that we inherited were managed before Europeans arrived. And they can, you know, they that knowledge can help us a lot as we deal with rapid change. 
Absolutely. And what are some of the predictions or, that these models are coming up with? I'm sure this is somewhat unique to what's going on in Australia, but I'm sure you've seen some from other parts of the world and continents. What have you been able to understand from where climate change is taking the patterns that kind of govern what thrives and, and survives in different areas? Yeah, well, a particular interest for me is Australian rainforest flora. It makes up a small amount of the continent. And we have rainforest plants that grow only grow above, say, 900 metres. Now, Australia doesn't have mountains, really, in the world sense. And, you know, if we look at ecological history, as big climate changes happened over broad time, plants have moved up that latitude, uh, up that altitudinal gradient. So these plants have gone a little bit higher because it's still cool up there as the lower parts have got hotter. In the case of some of these plants, there's nowhere to go. So there's nowhere higher up on the altitude gradient to escape the kind of temperature change we're modeling. So we have a project looking at 90 of these species, introducing them into different latitudinal locations. So we're accepting altitudinally, they can't go up any higher, but maybe they can grow in more Southern parts of Australia. They've never had the opportunity to get their seed there through their own means for various reasons. They don't have good enough seed distribution to move into those southern areas. And maybe if the climate change was much slower, perhaps that would happen and has happened historically. But maybe we can start to investigate whether we can translocate some of those populations to more southern latitudes where the temperature starts to match a little bit more what they've adapted to over long time in those montane or mountain rainforests. So that's, I guess, just one small snippet of the kind of investigations that need to be done and you know we're expecting obviously extreme weather events to get more common but we're also expect expecting in a lot of places a general drying increasing in heat and particularly increasing in extreme heat events so it's really you know part of looking at wild populations but also looking at our planted populations. So the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney has been around you know for over 200 years. Some of those plants are 200 years old. What can we expect 200 years from now at the Botanic Gardens in Sydney and part of our living collection strategy and planning is to start modelling that and to think about well we've got these wonderful collections of these kind of plants but in 200 years' time, maybe our collections will look very different because we're looking at a different climate. And one of the things that comes to mind when you talk about these efforts of translocating plants to see if they can survive at different latitudes, I mean, Australia is a stark example of what moving species around and reintroducing non-native species can do in a catastrophic sense as well, yeah. kind of like what we talked about earlier. What are you doing to ensure that reintroduction of species where they haven't traditionally grown doesn't result in an ecological disaster. Yeah, well, I mean, it's generally what's done is actually at this stage mapping species with a big geographical range and finding the locations where they're best matched to that climate change. So it's still the same species, but, you know, you're looking at the species maybe from a more northern latitude than a southern latitude. Um, for some cases, it really is just about ensuring that we conserve the genetic diversity of those plants. So it might be a translocated population which is never wild. 
it's a translocated population that always has some level of intervention. And I guess in the case of our seed banking and germplasm banking, we're actually, we're banking the genetic material for the future. Um, so whether that be seed or germplasm, we're really just making sure that as many of the rare plants in particularly the state I live in, New South Wales, but also all over Australia have, have been banked in an institution like our plant bank facility and partner institutions all around the world. So that, yeah, we ensure that genetic material survives um, in a worst case scenario. Yeah, and I agree that that effort is essential. Can you talk more about what the process is and perhaps even what some of the facilities look like of storing things like germplasm and seed to ensure that, I mean, you know, all of it has a certain shelf life and must be stored carefully because yeah. the idea is not just to have it, it's to be able to give it life again. What does that process look like? Yeah, so I mean, the first thing is collecting. So um, we're just getting teams ready again now to start sending out as spring hits um, the east coast of Australia and we start to get seed production in late spring and summer. Um, it's very targeted. So we look at, um, you know, the first, the first thing is we're looking at rare and threatened flora, but we're also looking at isolated occurrences of particular species. So it may not be rare, but it has this really weird population 500 kilometres from the nearest other population where we really want to capture that genetic material. Now, for a lot of, I guess, the traditional plant, Australian plants we think of, like eucalyptus and acacias and banksias, um, they respond quite well for tr to traditional techniques, which involves essentially bringing the seed in, cleaning it, drying it, freezing it, storing it at very low temperatures, and then depending on the species, on a, on a regular cycle, bringing out some of the seed and testing it for seed viability. So over the last um, few years, our team at Plant Bank have published um, guidelines for Australian species on how to store seed, but there's some that we call recalcitrant. So these are seeds that either won't dry or, if, you know, if you do dry them, you can't um, germinate them or you can't freeze them. So there's a lot of work being done on just trying to pick, you know, maybe there is a, a temperature that we can find, maybe there is a happy temperature for that particular species, but in the interim, for some of those, we store them essentially as tissue cultured plants. So it means every five to 10 years, you have to chop up all your little plants growing in a flask and do it again. Um, obviously that's very labor intensive, it's resource intensive. It takes up a lot of space as a pet composed to drying a bunch of seed and storing them in a freezer. But for again, for a lot of our rainforest species and with some of these other species, we don't have yet a way to store the seed. So we need to work with the tissue culture plantlets and the germplasm. This is really remarkable and, and I think important to know about because these conservation efforts are becoming more essential every year as we lose genetic diversity, biodiversity is going down across the world. And fortunately there are these concerted efforts to, to maintain this genetic diversity and, and see that it can be propagated out into the future. Now, one of the things that you mentioned just before we started is that you're one of the last generations of people who have stayed in a career path quite as long as you have. And in 30 years of working with this botanical garden, I'm curious to know 
what you have seen not only evolve in the way that you curate these uh, these collections, much like you talked about looking at more of an ecosystem perspective and in, incorporating indigenous knowledge, but what other key observations or differences have you seen evolve from this science and, and the park itself in your tenure there? Yeah, well, I think for our organization, we've we've really grown. So in that 30 years, the two we had two satellite botanic gardens, um, which are now fully fledged um, botanic gardens in their own right, but we work across all three sites. And I think, um, you know, we've seen probably like your city in Barcelona, we've seen Sydney sprawl. So their satellite gardens are now surrounded by large urban centres. So they're fulfilling a function for those people that I guess the Sydney Gardens has fulfilled for, you know, 200 years. So um, I think that's really important. I think you get um, peaks and troughs in community interest in plants. And, you know, COVID has caused another peak. Um, people have, you know, I guess kind of had to retreat to a much more restricted world and they've sort of taken plants with them. And we've seen this real boom in young people embracing plants, mostly as indoor plants or the sort of tropical look plants. But I see that as a fantastic thing because I do think before that we were probably, you know, we were on the downward run where, where people sort of saw plants as kind of background wallpaper. They weren't engaging so much with plants as more with animals. But I think we've seen a turnaround in that and it's really up to us to maximize that because I think the other space where we've started to work is is in building communities around gardens and building better mental health around interactions with nature and plants. So we have an outreach team that builds community gardens, particularly in underprivileged parts of the city, working with at-risk children and kind of connecting these communities around a shared interest in a garden. And again, I think just I guess a lot of us who've been involved in this world, this sort of plant world for a long time know that takes place. But I think now there's some real um, initiatives coming out of Botanic Gardens to embrace community, get them involved in our gardens, but also help them build their own gardens. So I think, I think that connection between people and plants is really strong at the moment and really important. That's really fantastic to hear because, yeah, I can imagine it goes in ebbs and flows depending on what's happening in the culture. But it's been such a big part of your job is introducing people to the fascinating world of plants. And I'm wondering what tactics you use to introduce people who perhaps have no real working knowledge, maybe back from grade school is what they're working with, uh, to re-engage with just how beautiful and connected this world of plants is, even if we can't see it moving and quite as dynamic as maybe we're used to in zoos. And, and observing animals. Yeah, I think, you know, touch, smell, sex and death. They're the, the four things that really work. So for some people, you know, they learn in a different sensory way, in a tactile way. And yeah, we get lots of overseas visitors and you can really, you know, and I know I've done some walks with um, vision impaired people and they can really understand what's going on just through feeling. Like you can, take them to an area with a whole bunch of introduced plants, maybe some of our food plants, they touch the leaves, they're soft, you, and they start to understand they need more water. And then you take them to a part of the garden where we're growing um, Sydney local plants and they're prickly and they have really tough leaves. And and then I think for other people, and, and this is one of the things we really do with, with our volunteer guides groups is 
um, we see them as storytellers. I mean, we like to say that every plant in our collection has a story to tell. And, um, you know, just like on the television or Netflix, it's the stories about sex and the stories about death that really sell. And the plant world is full of stories about sex. You know, we've got our wonderful fig wasps that pollinate our figs and all around Sydney, we've got little orchids that have co-evolved with wasps. The wasps are trying to have sex with the orchid and that's how they move the pollen around. So, you know, we, we try and um, engage people, take them on a bit of a journey with a plant or with a part of the gardens. And I know we had a recent exhibition in our glass house where we had about um, 8,000 carnivorous plants. And, you know, carnivorous plants are fantastic for that group that's hardest to break into, which is the teenage boy. But, you know, you show them carnivorous plants and suddenly they're getting a little bit interested. You know, this is kind of plants that have got a bit of grunt to them and they can fight back. So, yeah, I think um, over the years, particularly our volunteer guides have got very good at meeting a group and then thinking through. So how are they understanding the world? What's the thing that appeals to them? And then, you know, with a plant collection of 25,000 plants, over 8,500 different species, it's going to be a plant somewhere there that appeals to that group or to those people. So, yeah, that's and and then there's nothing better than taking people on that journey. There really is nothing better than seeing their face light up or, you know, them laugh or just be shocked and appalled by what they've just heard about, you know, an orchid that smells like a thousand rotting elephants. You know, that's impressive. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And there is such diversity that there's something for everybody, regardless of how much they know or what senses they connect with most, to really find a plant that, that opens that world to them. Um, and that's something that we were just discussing a second ago was, you know, just how diverse and broad not only the different forms of life in the plant world are, but also the senses and the way that they interact with the environment around them are. And yet, Throughout history, because of limited observation and tools and, quite frankly, just not paying enough attention, we have, especially, I guess, in the Western world, associated plants with the lowest form of life, you know, to, to be at a vegetative state is to, to be hanging on to only the absolute essence of life without anything complex within it. Yet, that is not representative at all of the senses, the intelligence, the feeling that the plant world has, and I'm only just starting to learn about this. You've been interacting with it for 30 years. What can you say to people who are unfamiliar with just how broad of a way that plants interact with and, and sense the world around them? Yeah, I think, again, it's, it's getting out of this idea that plants occur in isolation, that they are connected through all sorts of other organisms, both with each other, but with larger organisms as well, you know. Um, I think, you know, there's been a lot of excitement around some of the research done out of the Northern Hemisphere about trees communicating with each other. And that's just fantastic because what it's, it really has opened up to people and it, it's almost like the conversion experience. People have gone from, yeah, plants just sit there and they do nothing to, oh my God, the whole forest is talking to each other and trees are communicating and they know what's about to happen. So um, I think one, this is, it is very exciting to think there are those relationships um, and we're getting much better at drawing them out 
and also that we're dependent on those relationships ourselves. So I think that, um, yeah, that we've got a lot of skin in the game. You know, we often say, you know, kind of no plants, no people, you know. <laughs> but now we're also saying, you know, no fungi, no plants. You know, I mean, we only have terrestrial plants because they have relationship with fungi and bacteria and other microorganisms that we can't even we can't even see. Um, and you know, we have a number of plants in our collection that are functionally extinct in the wild because their pollinator has gone extinct. So if you don't have that microscopic little wasp that pollinates the flower and they've evolved this incredibly close mutualistic relationship, well, then you lose the plant. Once you lose the plant, what are the flow-on effects for the ecosystem? So, um, yeah, I do think that we're starting to appreciate that a little bit better. And through understanding those relationships, you start to realise, hang on a second, these plants are kind of, you know, we think about orchids and, you know, orchids have evolved to, you know, not really have to give up nectar to attract the pollinator. You know, they've come up with other strategies and we often, you know, we often joke they're a lot smarter than the animals that pollinate them. And that includes middle-aged men who love to hybridise orchids. You know, they're, they're really getting everyone else to do their bidding without us even realising it. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And it's been really interesting to see this understanding start to come into the agricultural world too. And the way that we curate, quite frankly, the largest tracts of land that are under management right now. It's all, all through agriculture. But seeing that there are much more nuanced and essential connections at the base of trying to obtain a yield and get the things mm -hmm. that we need for our own survival uh, and starting to, to curate and manage the entire aspect of an ecosystem rather than just trying to extract the value from the few things that we think we want the most. Mm -hmm. uh, just like you said, the, the different, like the natural world is very resilient and at the same time, very delicate. And if you start to remove elements of the food web or the trophic levels in different ecosystems, you, maybe it doesn't collapse, but you do start to lose things quite quickly because of all of the essential interconnections that the health of the entire system is reliant on. And this is often what I end up talking to uh, farmers about is that, you know, if, if, you're, if, if you've taken away a life form from the ecosystem, you now have to do the job that was being done for free and much better than the animal or the plant that was there before. And it's expensive to do that. And you're never going to do it quite as well because, you know, it's a surrogate that you're bringing in either mechanically or chemically. Mm. Whereas if you can curate a robust and diverse and healthy in web of interconnections, that's so much less work that you have to do. And the diversity of yields is potentially, well, depending on where you are, somewhat exponential based or limited only by the imagination and mm. uh the, the interconnections that you can facilitate. I would imagine you've seen the exact same thing in curating such a diverse garden and all of the elements that that help it to uh, to survive. Yeah, no, that's such a good point. And, you know, we always used to talk about, you know, feeding plants and growing plants. And now we talk about, you know, feeding the soil and growing the soil and ensuring that we've got an alive soil if we want to, if we want to grow plants. And I think that's probably the biggest culture change I've seen in horticulture. I mean, when I first started at the gardens, you know, once a month, 
you'd be spraying chemicals for nearly a whole day on exotic collections just because, you know, the the idea was that they could never show any signs of damage because you're the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney and, you know, everything has to be perfect, which, of course, it never was perfect. And the more chemicals you use, the less perfect long-term it was. So I think, um, yeah, there's been a total paradigm shift in the way we manage our collections plants. And, um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly important and, you know, just in the nick of time in many cases because if one thing about Australian landscapes and ecosystems, they're ancient and they are, they are incredibly resilient because they've been around for so long. But, yeah, the fragility of them can be, you know, very, very in your face when things go wrong. So I think, yeah, what you're talking about in your context is very much what we're starting to see with regenerative farming and sustainable horticulture. And really that's what we're all about. You know, we want to have a sustainable living collection. Um, we want to be, you know, good custodians of these incredible sites as well. Yeah, for sure. Now, because you've been doing this for such a long time and have seen the evolution of the paradigm by which we're managing these things, but also some of the changes from, you know, climate change um, and, and other threats from outside, I want to go back to when you first fell in love with the plant world. Uh, how did that begin? Because you worked so hard to get other people uh, into their, their sort of entry points into the world of plants. But what was your own? Yeah, it's interesting because I didn't have that really as a family background. You know, my parents were a little bit plant phobic and we very much lived in the city. Um, for me, it started when I was studying things very different. So I was studying law and needed money to study and got a job as a gardener at the university and uh, along with I guess having a, a kind of passion for conservation issues um, and I'd always sort of thought that my avenue into that would be more just through advocacy but then I realized I really enjoyed the process the day-to-day -day process of working as a gardener and that was um yeah, that was kind of did it for me, you know. They talk about sometimes lawyers in Sydney, they say, you know, hell has harbour views. They sit in that tiny little office, whereas, you know, I've been so lucky that my office has been a 64-hectare paradise right next to the water. So, um, and, you know, I guess one of the really interesting things that's happened in my career is moving from being the sort of hands-on guy for 25 years into the training volunteers to interpret the collection and you know it's great to have a kind of vocation and then take a pause and reflect on what you've been doing because you're in the middle of doing it and sometimes you don't have the chance to reflect on it and over the last five years that's kind of what I've been able to do and better understand why I was doing things and and try and share that with people so it's um yeah it's been an interesting journey um, and yeah, maybe not traditional one. That's, that's really interesting. And so you've been involved with the, the gardens here and curating some of its prominent collections. And I would imagine those have changed and evolved over time. You've worked with different groups. I'm interested in what does the curation of a collection look like? Uh, what yeah. have been some of the ones that, that you've been fundamental in, in creating and, and how do those evolve over time? 
Yeah, so I guess the, the last collection I was curating hands-on was our palm collection at the Sydney Botanic Gardens, which is, you know, was certainly for the first 100 years of the gardens, the keynote collection. Um, it then had a lot of problems because of the roosting of a large um, bat, flying fox, grey-headed flying fox. It denuded the collection a lot. There'd also been, a, you know, organisations changed priorities and the palm collection had sort of suffered from being lower priority as other collections gained more focus. So, I mean, it's, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of managing a collection is, first of all, knowing what you have where it came from you know that's kind of the essential business of a botanic garden so that level of just going through what you've got stock taking it and then working out so what is the priority what do, why do we have this collection and what are we trying to do with it in some cases its main focus may be conservation in other cases its main focus may be education and you know just giving people a sense of where some of these plants come from and what we need to do to conserve where those plants come from. And I guess that's that's the way the palm growth collection went. And we have a focus on Australian palms, but we also decided to really enhance our collections of other island floras palm collections as a you know as a kind of advocacy thing. So like a living advocacy for the palms of Madagascar or the palms of New Caledonia. You know, they're in serious trouble. They're, you know, threatened by all of these things. So, you know, to, I guess, raise awareness, they do provide, you know, some sort of ex situ conservation stock. But in that case, it was more predominantly education. And then you've got to start thinking about the future. So, you know, what is the succession plan for this collection? You know, what's it going to look like in 50 years, 100 years? What things are going to senesce over that time? And how are we going to replace them and enhance the collection? So... Yeah, it's interesting, and and each collections each collections different, you know. Uh -huh. For some, for some collections, the the focus, and particularly at our Australian Botanic Gardens, is really trying to represent in a garden setting and backed up in our seed bank the genetic diversity of that particular species. So it's um it's again really at that micro level. So it's not enough to just have you know, one of this species or five of this species, but you need a group from its whole geographical range. And, uh, yeah, so each way it's it's fascinating um, and, yeah, brings lots of challenges. But you learn so much, and that's, that's one of the great things about working for a transnational botanic gardens is you just, you know, learn so much about incredible places all around the world. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. And see, I'm imagining in my head that you're essentially doing like an art curation because there's so much aesthetic value to the plants that you're putting in there. But you have all of the variables and dynamics of having to keep all of your art alive. And like you said, preventing senescence and replacing them as it goes and maintaining the genetics with all of the uh, variables that can come up from uh, from weather, from climate change, from... I don't even know how much the the visitors interact with them. And if you get people like accidentally damaging them, I mean, basically all of the complexity of a garden and all of the aesthetic considerations of an art curation. I mean, this must be endlessly fascinating, but really difficult as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, you've really put your finger on it. But 
Um, you know, gardens are incredibly complex because they're living and the only thing you're guaranteed is they're going to change dramatically over time. So it's, you know, and it is, you know, one of the things I've been involved with is designing big horticultural displays as well. And there is that, is you imagine a garden before it's realised and then it's never quite what you imagine, but usually it's better. You know, it's sort of, you've got this incredible amount of um, uncontrollable variables mixed in with all the things that you hope for and design for. So, yeah, it's, um, and surprise is always around the corner, which I think is also one of the great delights is that you will be surprised despite all the planning and all the things that you're trying to control and, you know, the best experts advising, there will always be surprises. I completely understand that in my own experience with gardening and farming and especially working with animals, anytime you're you're trying to curate or or design or steward a dynamic living system, emergent properties, evolution and surprise are that's part for the course. It's not something that uh, that might happen. It's a guaranteed aspect of the job, right? And I would imagine that in your career and all of the different uh, collections and the work that you've been involved in, you've seen some pretty incredible things in the plant world. And I'm wondering what have been some of the most remarkable or the ones that stand out most in your memory? Yeah, I think um, the first time we had an Amorphophallus titanum, so the giant stinking arum, which comes from Sumatra, the first time that flowered, I mean, there was so much buildup and hope over a decade you know, every year the tuber would be weighed in the hope that it might be big enough to flower next season. So the first time it flowered was amazing. And because the the smell of this flower is, or this inflorescence collection of flowers, just can't be really described. It's basically, you know, throw all the worst smells you can imagine in a blender and then take the lid off. And it happens at night as well. So there's that extra level to it. So the first night the flower was opening, we all got messages. You know, it was about nine o'clock at night. It's starting to flower. It's in an enormous closed glass house. But, you know, 300 metres from the glass house, you could already smell it. And and it was incredible. So, you know, as big as me, um, you know, 1.6 metres, 7 metres tall, incredible smell. And just the excitement of it as well. I mean, it's why you work at Botanic Gardens. It's when you get those things that you think you'll never see and you get to see them and, you know, in part you're responsible for it happening. So, um, yeah, that was certainly for me one of the most exciting moments. And, you know, following on from that, the gardens then developed a way to propagate the plant through vegetatively through leaf cuttings, which was amazing because that helps take the pressure off that incredibly rare wild population. So, you know, it's that... That's why it was an apprentice who came up with the way to do it, you know. So, um, yeah, that was incredibly exciting. Um, yeah, just an amazing moment. And and then I think sometimes there's just moments that are just overwhelming because of how excited other people get about what's going on. Just remember a small boy just running to where our spring walk was and all the peach blossoms were flowering there was bulbs flowering everywhere and he just got so excited he was literally just jumping up and down on the ground and just ran off screaming mom dad quick it's beautiful come come quick as if it was so transient that it could disappear so yeah sometimes it's 
amazing things that plants have done. And then sometimes it's just incredible reactions from people. That's really beautiful. I, I've heard of that flower before and I've seen some pictures and video of it as well as the description of that smell, but, but <laughs> that must be something completely different to experience, especially after years and years of buildup like that. What What is the evolutionary reason for that horrible stink? Yeah, well, look, they're, they don't flower that often. They're widely spread on the edges of rainforests and they have to do something really big to attract the pollinator. So essentially the deal is make an enormous horrendous smell to attract carrion beetles and blowflies that think there's an enormous rotting carcass for them to come and obviously lay their eggs in and uh you know that's that's the deal but it, it's so incredibly nuanced you know the the flower heats up up to about 13 degrees above the ambient temperature and then only the female flowers are receptive all those insects come right down into the center of the flower where they're then essentially trapped because there are these little downward facing hairs that stop them getting out. The smell subsides. They're all trapped in there, having a party, breeding, laying their eggs. Then a couple of nights or one night later, the whole thing heats up again when the male flowers are mature and releasing their pollen. Those little hairs disappear all those insects crawl out, get covered in pollen, go back up into the air. Now, if you're going to get them while they've got pollen on, again, you've got to get them moving across big distances. So again, creating that enormous smell, you've got to store all that energy to create the heat, to activate the chemicals, to make the smell. So it's, it is incredible. Fascinating. A wonderful thing to, um, you know, maybe the smell is pretty hardcore. So I know when I came yeah. home from the first time it flowered, I literally just got in the door and my whole family was like, oh, my God, what does, <laughs> what did the cat drag in? So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. That's amazing. And I mean, you know, maybe there are less spectacular or noticeable uh, displays of, of propagation of, of, of sexual reproduction like that in the plant world, but you know, maybe they're done at a smaller scale or one that we're less attuned to, but this kind of stuff is happening all around us all the time. And that's what I'm constantly trying to push myself to attune my senses to observe and, and have the patience to see things on that scale, because really this is happening around us all the time. Yeah, it's true. I mean, one of the high points for me of, of the lockdown in Sydney was going to a local cemetery and seeing the flying duck orchid for the first time. And the thing's tiny. It's only, you know, five millimetres across. Um, and it was, you know, there was someone who pointed it out to me in the cemetery and it was just so exciting to see it, you know, and, and, and knowing the story of how it's pollinated was just, yeah, just fantastic. So you're right. Um, it is all around us and, and sometimes happening at a microscopic level. I guess for humans, size still matters. Those big, smelly things tend to be <laughs> the things that you know create the big impact. And of course, yeah. when that when that uh, um, giant stinking arum flowered, we had you know queues of hundreds and hundreds of people lined up through the gardens to get into the glass house and see it. You know, and again, they're those moments where you grab a whole new audience. You know, people who mightn't be so attuned to plants something like that it's like well I've got to see it you know so yeah 
they can be great. Um, those species can be great champions for the whole plant world because they do wake people up, perhaps in the most dramatic way. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so it makes me think too that as good of the work as the botanical gardens and the network around the world is doing to preserve this genetic information and introduce people to the fascinating world of plants, there must be more that we can do as individuals in our own lives to contribute to this as well. Do you have any advice for how others can interact with and even help to preserve uh, the genetic diversity and uh, maybe even curate the introductions for others to fall in love with the world of botany and horticulture as well? Yeah, look, I think there's there's so much to be done. I mean, I think, you know, in the Australian context and even in urban areas, there's a lot of wild places or remnant pieces of vegetation that communities embrace. And again, I think that's a, a wonderful thing for people to do to sort of take on that custodianship of pieces of bushlands to help revegetate them, you know, work together as as part of a community. Um, and I think, you know, I'm a parent and, you know, my kids are grown up now, but I do think parents have a, a great opportunity and grandparents, of course, and significant adults in modelling that interaction with plants and with the natural world, whether it's gardening or whether it's walking or whether it's just teaching kids what the local trees are. I mean, it's amazing how many studies have been out about, you know, kids have all this knowledge about, you know, basketball players and stuff, but they walk out into their local bushland and they don't recognise or know anything about any of the trees. So I think um, introducing that next generation to a kind of appreciation of nature, because I think, you know, you can't conserve what you don't know and love. So I think starting at that point is, is super important. And, um, you know, I'll put in a plug for botanic gardens. Um, they're everywhere. There's botanic gardens all around the world. And, you know, I like to say, at least in Sydney, that the oldest community garden in Australia is the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney. You know, it's not just professionals that have made that garden. It's, you know, it's all sorts of people from, you know, passionate amateurs to storytellers to people who just... Um, you know, fight and care for the place when it's threatened by whatever's going on around it. So I do think botanic gardens are always looking for people to get involved, whether, you know, in any kind of support role. Um, yeah, so discover your local botanic gardens and find out a way to get involved. It is, you know, an amazing community of people that surrounds botanic gardens. I've never been to a botanic gardens anywhere in the world that does not have an amazing community of people somehow involved in that garden. Yeah, I have no doubt. And that's such a beautiful message. Uh, I'm actually just about to receive my sister and her three little girls are coming to visit. They live in Kuwait where there's, you know, not a whole lot of diverse <laughs> plant life. And one of the main things that I love to do when they come and visit is, uh, well, I, in the mornings, I take the girls on what we call jungle school. And I take them out by the river, the, the riparian zones and the forest that we have around here in Catalonia introduce them to different species and my own love for for plant life i mean I, i've seen the excitement and the transformation when you know they don't see a whole lot of greenery where they live for the most part but there's an a natural connection especially with children i'm sure you've seen it yourself that uh you know they feel at home in these environments and 
they connect really deeply because they have a patience and a sense of observation and curiosity that many of us lose when we get older. It's been so rewarding for me to introduce my own love of, of the natural world to them. And that's something I'm really looking forward to doing this upcoming month. Um, well, before I let you go here, uh, Paul, can you tell our listeners how they can find out more about your own Royal Botanical Garden in Sydney and, and get in touch with you guys? Yeah, for sure. So um, like everywhere, we've got very nice web pages. So um, rbgsyd.nsw.gov is where you'll find Royal Botanic Gardens web pages. And remember, we have three sites that cover really different plant communities. So um, yeah, jump on board. We've also got um, a terrific uh, video podcast called What the Flora? where some of our scientists talk about the kind of research that they're doing. Uh, and then we also have an audio podcast that people can listen to and, again, find out more about what our researchers are doing and some of the stories behind the plants within the Botanic Gardens. And, of course, you know, particularly the Sydney Garden is very easy to find. If you can find the Opera House, you can find the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney. They're our neighbours. Um, and then... For the other gardens, it might take a little bit more work, but incredibly rewarding. The Australian Botanic Garden at Mount Annan is the largest botanic garden in Australia. It's only Australian plants. And as I said, I think earlier, it does contain these rare ecological communities that you, you, know, you won't see anywhere else. So, um, yeah, definitely, if you're in Australia, visit not only our botanic gardens in Sydney, but you'll find incredible botanic gardens in every capital city and often in regional areas as well. So, um, yeah, I can definitely vouch for that. I was in Sydney only once uh, back when I was visiting the, the continent in my travels. And that was actually one of the first places that I went was to the botanical gardens. And I, I remember, maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm mistaken in the species, but I think it's the jacaranda tree, the jacaranda tree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that blooms all in purple. I was there right when they were all in bloom. And that was one of the things that most stuck with me from that visit. So if you're in the area, definitely check it out. And if you're too far away, I can highly recommend those web resources. Like you mentioned, the blog articles on there are fascinating. The beautiful pictures on your Instagram. I'll put all the links to that in the show notes for this episode as well. Well, fantastic, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. We, I mean, we could go on much further, geek out on plants. Maybe we can do this in a follow-up episode, but I want to thank you again for your time. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Oliver. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks once again to Paul Nicholson. I'll be posting all the links that he mentioned in the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so you never miss an episode. And that's our session for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.